Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, one of the... uh, I shared this with a group of elementary kids this week at a chapel I preached. Um, What's the greatest fear for a preacher? Anybody want to venture some guesses out there today? (laughs) Nobody showing up to church? That's a good guess. I guess that's a good guess. Uh, greatest fear of a preacher, Scott said, nobody's showing up at church. What's another potential fear? That's not the one I was thinking of. What's, what, what's another fear of a preacher? Come on. Oversleeping. oversleeping. <laughs> yes, I have had a couple of nightmares in my life where I overslept for my own sermon. Uh, y'all worry about sleeping during the sermon, but I worry about sleeping through, uh, sleeping, oversleeping before my sermon. No, that's not the fear. I've also had the fear of getting up here and not having my notes, not being able to find those. I've actually had to live that a couple of times. That's not fun. That's not the greatest fear, though, I think. What's the greatest fear? The kids were great this week with all the guesses. I mean, and they were really deep, too. I mean, they got very theological. But uh, the greatest fear for a preacher is a clock. Anyway, all right. Well, yeah, the clock. So... We're always on the clock, always uh, marking time. Matthew chapter 16, as we continue our study today, believable how Christianity is both rational and wonderful. And just to do a quick review, to bring you up to speed on where we've been and where we hope to go in the final two weeks of this series, the main theme, the main proposition of this series has been to say this, it's important for us to examine the components that lead to our belief, that lead to our faith. Because it is only in better understanding those components and reasonings that we can have a faith that is stronger and a more humble interaction with others. So I think both of those components are important. Both understanding what we believe and why we believe it and being able to, um, as 2 Timothy says, to entreat folks, to plead with them, understanding that uh, they are in the grip of Satan, they are in the grip of deceit and lies. And so the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle, um, apt to teach, patient towards all men. And so, uh, and so this has been our theme. And so I hope that this has at least began a process of you studying and exploring. And my heart has been so thrilled in hearing those who have not just taken the sermon itself, but have gone beyond the sermon. Several of you have bought books from the table, checked out books from the library, you've studied, you've learned, uh, you, have, you have given me feedback. It's been so helpful for me, and I know it has been for all of us. And so my prayer is that this will continue as we wrap up these next two weeks, that we would continue to understand why it is that we believe the things that we believe, so that we can have a more humble interaction with others and give an answer for the reason of the hope that rests within us. This series has been for three groups of people. Number one, the authentic seeker. For those who do not yet know Christ but have genuine questions about God, about uh, this reality, how everything came into existence. We've, we've talked a lot about that in this series, about the cosmological argument. I'll mention that again here in a second. But the authentic seeker. The underground skeptic, I mentioned there's a group of people that even continue to worship in the church today, but they have been uh, confronted with serious doubts and arguments. And so they're very skeptical about faith. They're not sure what they believe right now, but they're just, uh, you know, going through this process. And so I hope that you know that here at Fairview, if you are wrestling through serious questions about your faith, that this is an environment where you can talk about that and receive answers and receive help and growth here in this body of believers. Amen? That's my prayer. 
Uh, that's always been uh, the, the prayer here. And, and so, and then, of course, also for the unprepared believer. And the truth is, uh, no matter how prepared we might think we are, uh, we can always be more prepared. I, I had a, uh, a, a debate online about six months ago with two atheists, and I thought I was prepared. But I came out of that debate saying, wow, I, I need to study more, and I need to learn, and I need to grow more. And so uh, the fact is, all of us, hopefully, have been helped in this series. And then uh, we, we, we said this in the first message, and I just want to remind you about this. If our answers aren't backed with good reasons, then we have shallow answers. And I said how when the world asks us about why we're Christians, we can't just say, well, my mom and daddy were that, so that's why I am, or my pastor says... Uh, those are shallow answers, and so hopefully this series has been a, uh, a, a uh, greenhouse, so to speak, of giving you solid answers to give to the world out there, backed with good reasons. And then we said this, if our answers aren't backed by compassion and humility, then we have hollow answers. You can have the best answers in the world. You can know apologetics backwards and forwards, upside down and right. And the fact is, you can know all that truth, but if there's no compassion with the truth, then your answers aren't going to be heard by the world. And so there's both the need to learn good reasons so that we don't have shallow answers, but then there's also this need to make sure that they're backed by compassion and humility so that we don't have hollow answers, so that they don't just go shoo, right over someone's head. Um, I love how Justin Brierley said in his book, Unbelievable, many of you have read that book during this series. He said, debates are somewhat pointless if they merely reinforce each side's views. But good conversations have a habit of, going, of getting beyond the rhetoric and point scoring of a debate and instead open up a space for genuine learning. And so in this series, our goal has been to build an uh, argument from the ground up, reasonings from the ground up of why we believe Christianity is true beyond a reasonable doubt. We've bo both looked at theism, a basic belief in God, and Christianity, which is the uh, specific expression out of theism, which is the only true uh, religion in the world. And I use that word religion uh, broadly. Uh, ultimately, it's about a relationship with God and how God came down to man and established relationship again with mankind. And so we built a case from the ground up. We started with truth. Does truth exist? Can we know truth? How do we know it? Why does it matter? Um, anyone who says you cannot know truth is defeating themselves because they're claiming that that statement in and of itself is true. And so we talked about all those self-defeating arguments and laws of logic and how we can know anything at all. How many of you have ever just sat around for hours in a day just giving thought to how you know anything at all? <laughs> some, some philosophers do that for a living and they get paid for it. Can you believe it? It'd be great just to be able to sit around all day and think about, why do I think about anything at all? Anyway, does truth exist? Part two, we looked at does God exist? And we spent two, uh, three or four weeks in this area talking about the existence of God. We gave three arguments for God's existence, arguments which are found in the Bible, but you don't necessarily need, to buy, need the Bible to know that, that they are true. And so we talked a lot about external evidence for these arguments, the cosmological argument, the fact that there's a beginning of the universe, the teleological argument that this universe has incredible design, that biological life has incredible design. This couldn't have just happened by accident. Then we talked about the moral argument, the fact that there is this moral law outside of us pressing upon us, and we know by deduction that there must be a lawgiver outside of us, uh, a God that, that created the world and sustains the world, and we know that this God must be a moral God. He's a personal God. He's spirit. He's powerful. He's intelligent. 
He has intentionality. And then we talked about miracles and the possibility of those. And we said that if Genesis 1-1 is the greatest miracle and we can show that that has occurred, the leaping of the universe into existence out of nothing, then every other miracle that we read about in the Bible is logically possible. And so we talked about the believability of, of miracles and how if we can prove that the greatest miracle has occurred, Genesis 1-1, then every other miracle is possible. Then we talked for the last couple of weeks about the New Testament. Is the New Testament true? And we talked about two questions. First, do we have accurate copies of these original documents? And second, do these documents tell us the truth? It's one thing to have an accurate copy, but it's another thing to have an accurate copy of the truth. I mean, if you think about that, that's really important. I mean, uh, uh, Muslims would claim that they have an accurate copy of the Quran from about the 6th century onward. doesn't mean that the Quran teaches the truth. Um, the Book of Mormon, they can claim that that has an accurate copy from a couple of hundred years ago, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily telling us the truth. And so we talked about five E's last week, five uh, E's of evidence that share with us, that really show us that these writers were telling us the truth. These were not cunningly devised fables, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. And so this week, we're really uh, starting to wrap up the series. Next week, we're going to look at all the evidence for the resurrection. Please be back next week for that as we prepare our hearts for the resurrection week, as we celebrate Easter together. But this week, I want to talk to you about why do these things matter. Um, one of the big words that has dominated the last couple of decades of pop culture is the word whatever. <laughs> Whatever. How many of you grew up saying whatever, you know? Uh, and, that, and, that, and, and the reality is that's the culture that, that we've grown up in. This, this point of, oh, it doesn't matter, whatever. It doesn't matter. Life doesn't matter. And, of course, we see that mentality now showing up in all the laws and all the ways that are destroying life. If nothing matters then life doesn't matter. And that's what politicians now are voting for. They're voting for infanticide. They're voting, you know, if nothing matters, then it doesn't matter what you call yourself. You can call yourself a giraffe. You can call yourself, I mean, there's a guy who dresses up in a latex dog suit now and thinks he's a dog. I mean, the, the point is, is we are living in a culture where we can see the, uh, the effects of this thinking. So what, why does this all matter? This is the question that we seek to address this morning. And ultimately, all of this matters because it leads us to two things. Number one, to the adoption of a true worldview. We're going to talk about what a worldview is. How many of you have a worldview this morning? Raise your hand if you've got a worldview. Yes, a worldview. Not just being able to see physically, but a way that you frame all these circumstances and experience of your world, how you see the world. We're going to talk about what a worldview is and why that matters. And then ultimately, and we're going to kind of go backwards here, we're going to also talk about the deity of Jesus Christ and why that matters. As we prepare our hearts for the resurrection, it's important to give to you um, evidence for the deity of Jesus Christ and why ultimately your decision about Jesus matters the most. And so with that said, let's look at the scripture. Matthew 16, verse 18, the Bible says these words. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the question that is presented to every person who will ever live. Who is Jesus Christ? 
And Peter answered later on in that passage in verse 16 that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, bless our time now as we take this verse and look at your deity and look at the worldview that we have. And Father, I pray you'd help us as we grow in grace today. Help us to start to think about, um, even practically, how we'll take these things we've learned about truth, about your existence, about the miraculous, about the New Testament, and to start to formulate how we would ask questions, how we would have conversations with those who do not yet know you as Savior, or even starting way back, even don't believe in a God at all. So, Father, thank you that we have this environment where we can learn. Thank you for um, the opportunity to share these truths today. We pray you bless this study in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Jesus really was confronting here in this passage the issue of his deity, who he was. And ultimately, probably one of the most important things, if not, I mean, it could be argued this is the most important, the most important thing, or if not the most important, is who you think Jesus Christ is. That is the issue. And so, why does the deity of Jesus Christ matter? Well, we see that Jesus claimed and proved that he was God. And so, the, this issue of the deity of Jesus Christ matters because he claimed it and he proved it. He proved it by fulfilling prophecy. Do you remember the prophecies that we shared with you last week? We said that there's over 300, but we just took eight or nine and showed you how there is no other person in human history that could have fulfilled those prophecies. In fact, the Messiah had to come before 70 AD. Why? Because the temple was destroyed after 70 AD. And so Jesus fulfilled prophecy. He lived a sinless life and performed miracles. And then he predicted and accomplished his own resurrection, as we'll look at next week. So Jesus asserted and claimed that he was God. I want to show you several scriptures. You just want to maybe write these down, grab a screenshot of them as we go. Um, and we're going to show that here in a second. Because here's the issue. The deity of Jesus matters because if Jesus is God, as he claimed to be, then everyone or everything, excuse me, that's a typo, everything that he teaches is true. So if Jesus is God, then everything that he teaches is true. And the reason this matters is because, as I alluded to in the last couple of weeks, it's not just the New Testament that's true, but it's also the Old Testament. In fact, the only Bible that Jesus had when he was quoting all these scriptures was he was quoting the Old Testament. And so if Jesus is God and he proved that by his sinless life, his miracles, his rising from the dead, and he affirmed that the Old Testament was truth, then we can know that that is the Word of God. So Jesus taught that the Bible is the Word of God including the Old Testament scriptures. So I want to show you how Jesus clearly claimed to be God. Uh, Exodus 3.14, this is a wonderful passage. Uh, uh, Pastor Don was right there in that zip code today as he was talking about Moses' encounter with the holy God. And um, God reveals himself to Moses out of that burning bush, and he says this, God said unto Moses, I am that I am. That's a very interesting word, phrase, combination. What does that basically mean? God's the self-existent one. He is what he is. He's everything you need him to be, and he's so much more. He is eternally self-existent, transcendent, incomprehensible to us in so many ways, but of course revealed to us in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. 
And he said, This shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Now, here's what's fascinating about this famous verse. Any Jew who knew their first five books of the Bible would have known this verse very well. In John chapter number 8, Jesus says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And then the Jews, knowing their Old Testament very well, took up stones to cast at him. Why? Because he had just said that he was, is, and always will be God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ claimed to be God. The Jews knew that, so they tried to take up stones to stone him. Jesus also claimed to be Yahweh, or the Lord of the Old Testament, capital L-O-R-D. Whenever you read your Old Testament, there might be two words, Lord. One spelled capital L, lowercase O-R-D. That simply means master or ruler. The capital L-O-R-D is talking about Yahweh, the I Am. And look at all the attributes that are attributed to God in the Old Testament. Shepherd, the first and the last, judge, bridegroom, light, savior, God's glory, giver of life. All these attributes are attributed to Yahweh in the Old Testament. And you can see the corresponding Old Testament references there. But in the New Testament, Jesus affirms all of these things about himself. There is no mistake that Jesus was claiming to be God. You cannot get around it. This is, uh, this is irrefutable. It's amazing to me how secular, um, unbelieving scholars say, well, Jesus was just a good man. Well, a good man doesn't claim to be God, okay? Um, uh, if, if you have someone at your job claiming to be God, you pray for their sanity. You're like, okay, this guy needs prayer. This, this, this gal needs prayer because they're clearly out of their mind. In fact, we said last week that some of his brothers came, some of his family came in John 7. You remember John 7 verse 5? They tried to take him home because they thought he was out of his mind. And so Jesus clearly claimed to be God. What's even better? Proved it. He proved to be God. But let's keep looking at his claims here. So he claimed to be the Yahweh Lord of the Old Testament. He claimed to be equal with God. Look at this passage, Mark 2, verses 5 through 7. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the one sick of a palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies? His enemies, the uh, Pharisees, knew what Jesus was saying. He was claiming to be God. Who can forgive sins but God only? And Jesus, of course, knowing this, then shows the men through a miracle that he's God. What did he do to the man who was paralyzed? He said, rise and walk so that you may know what? The Son of Man has power to forgive sins. And so not only did he claim it, but here in this passage, he proved that he was God by performing one of the three types of miracles that would point to the Messiah, to the Son of God coming to this earth. One was to heal the lame. Another was to heal the blind. Another could be argued to heal lepers and then also to raise people from the dead. And so we see these things that the Messiah was able to do. He claimed to be equal with God. Also, he claimed to be one with the Father. John 10, verses 30 through 33, he says, I and my Father are one. Again, then the Jews took up stones to stone him. Jesus answered, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered, Saying for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, make yourself to be God. So Jesus claimed his oneness with the Father. 
He also claimed to be the Messiah God of the, of the Old Testament, prophesied. Isaiah 9, 6, a very famous passage in the book of Isaiah. We quote it at Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And there's a fascinating phrase uh, interchange there between a child being born, speaking of Jesus' humanity, and a son being given, speaking of Jesus' divinity, so the God-man there. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And just to make sure, this wasn't talking about the nation of Israel. This wasn't talking about another Old Testament king in the book of Isaiah. This was talking about the coming Messiah, the Son of God, because he would be called what, church? The Mighty God the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So there again is even the oneness with the Father. And of course, we're not going to open the can of worms of the Trinity today, but fascinating there that you see all this coming to bear. And so, of course, Jesus then says this. So keep this verse in mind and look at John 4, 25. The woman saith unto him, I know that the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. And what did Jesus say to the woman? I am and in the English, in the King James Version, the word he is in italics, which means that it wasn't there in the original language. Literally, Jesus said, I am. Again, referring back to Exodus chapter number 3. So he, so he claims to be the Messiah. Here in Mark 14, 61 to 62, again, he's claiming this. And he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, again the high priest asked him. So this is during Jesus' trial at the house of Caiaphas. And he says unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. What was that a reference to? Jesus was actually alluding to an Old Testament passage in the book of Daniel, chapter number 7. And when the high priest heard this, he rent his garment. Because he realized what Jesus was claiming. And of course, the high priest thought he was blaspheming. But Jesus had proven throughout his entire earthly life that he was, is, and always will be God. He also claimed worthy, worthy of honor due only to God. John 5, 22 through 23. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. So I believe as you read the New Testament, you see that it is irrefutable how Jesus even claimed to be worthy of worship. I mean, look at all the references where he claimed to be worthy of worship. People bowed to him and gave, gave worship unto him. And so Jesus claimed deity. He claimed to be equal in authority with God. Again, for sake of time, we're not going to look at all these uh, passages of Scripture, but you can see them there. He's claiming authority. And then here's the kicker. He claimed to be the object of prayer like God. Now, um, it would be really weird if one of your siblings, you know, your brother or sister said, when you pray, pray in my name. That would be very egotistical for them to do, right? Yes, you're not going to do that. It would be very egotistical for any of us to say that. But look at what Jesus says. He says, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in, this is Jesus speaking, in my name, I will do it. Why, why is he worthy of that uh, uh, position? Because he's the mediator between God and man. He is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the one uh, worthy of being an object of prayer like God the Father. So why do I go through all these references? To, to basically make this point, you cannot stay on the fence about who Jesus claimed to be. 
You can't. You can't have an honest reading of the Gospels and of his life and say, well, he was just a good man, or uh, he was a prophet, and he taught good things. We should model our lives after him, but, but he wasn't. No, he claimed to be God. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, Mere Christianity. In fact, one of the greatest books you'll ever read, um, one of my favorite on this, on this issue of apologetics and just thinking through a lot of these things. Here's what he said about the deity of Jesus Christ. This is a lengthy quote, but I want you to look at it with me. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus. Here's what a lot of people say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can try to shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher when he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And it's from this famous quote where C.S. Lewis is saying, you've got to make a choice. You can't patronize and say, well, Jesus was a good moral teacher. No, he didn't leave that door open because of the claims that I just shared with you. And this is the quote from which we get the trilemma argument, the famous trilemma argument. You can either say Jesus was a liar. You can say Jesus was a lunatic. But the prayer is, is that as you read about his life and you see what he did, that you would call him Lord and Savior. One single life that has made the most difference in human history. One solitary life who has transformed countless millions. Have you seen him? Do you know him? Have you made a decision about who he is, like Peter did? He's God. He's Lord. He's my Savior. He's my Master. And so Jesus affirmed his deity. He affirmed it. And because of that, look at what he said about the Old Testament scriptures. I got to thinking, you know, we don't just want to look at the New Testament, although that's where we started because it's from the New Testament that we understand we get the Old Testament thrown in because a lot of the New Testament is quotations of the Old Testament. I love the uh, Old and New Testament are both the Word of God. Amen? And it's sad today that there's some confusion out there about how some preachers are throwing out the Old Testament. I'm like, don't throw out the Old Testament. It's there, as Romans 15, 4 says, for our learning that through the comfort and patience of the Scriptures we might have hope. You see, it's the Old that points us to the New. It's the Old that prepares us to receive what God does in the New Covenant and the finished work of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so here's what Jesus said about the Old Testament. I love this. Uh, Jesus said these things about the Old Testament, and this is found in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Again, a great tool. Out of all those, that's probably my favorite on the table out there, as you can tell, but uh, uh, also Cold Case Christianity covers a lot of this as well. Uh, and many of you have uh, picked that book up as well. He says these things about the Old Testament. He says it's a divinely authoritative, 
And we don't have time to look at all these references, but he says it's divinely authoritative, it's imperishable, it's infallible. He says that the Old Testament is inerrant, it's without error. He says that it's historically reliable, and oh, is it? (laughs) Man, once again, shameless plug to go watch both of Tim Mahoney's videos, Exodus uh, part one and then Exodus part two. Got to go watch those. It's scholarly, but he really does as best as he can to put it down on a level where we can get it. He's got great graphics. Wow, is the Old Testament historically reliable, folks? It's incredible. Um, And so it's historically reliable, it's scientifically accurate, and it has ultimate supremacy. Ultimate supremacy. So Jesus taught these things about the Old Testament. Then he said, he, he affirmed these things in the Old Testament. He says, beginning at Moses, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Why should the Old Testament be just as precious to us as the New Testament? Because the Old Testament speaks of him. It's all about him. So embrace the truth today. As you're opening the Bible this week, enjoy finding the portraits of Jesus and how it points to him. He says here, and and it's from this passage in Luke 24 that you should determine to have a Christocentric hermeneutic, meaning that all of the scripture filters through and funnels into an understanding of the revelation of Christ. And so it's from these, and of course Hebrews 1 and others, that we build this understanding that all of Scripture points to a person, and his name is Jesus, because Jesus reveals to us God the Father, Son, and the Spirit. What did he say to Philip? If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. And so he said that. He said that the Scriptures, and when he's saying the word Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. He says in John 5.39, the Scriptures testify of me. He says, from Abel to Zechariah. Uh, What does he mean there? He's saying that all of this is true. From Abel, the first prophet, to Zechariah, the final one, all of this is true. He sums up the entire Old Testament there in Matthew 23. He says, do not think that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. He said, no, I've come to fulfill it because I'm the only one who can fulfill that. He's the only one who could fulfill the prophecies. He's the only one that could fulfill the law. And because of his righteous life, his vicarious death, his victorious resurrection, we can now be made righteous because of his life. His life for mine, his life for mine. And then he said over 92 times, it is written, it is written. So in the New Testament, you have 92 times the authority of the Old Testament is cited in this way. It is written. That's how Jesus faced his temptations in the wilderness. How did he face those temptations in the wilderness? By saying, it is written. And how did he do that? Because as a boy, he had memorized Scripture. And I'm sure as a young man, he continued to memorize Scripture. And I'm sure even right up until this temptation in the wilderness, he had been hiding God's Word not on the shelf, but in his heart. Think about it. He was in the wilderness for 40 days. You know what he couldn't probably carry around with him in in the wilderness for 40 days? A big old scroll of Isaiah or the Pentateuch. He had hidden God's word in his heart just like you have to. You see, in his humanity, he, 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 he didn't have the shortcut option available to him. He, he memorized scripture just like you and I do. So what a challenge for us to hide God's word in his heart. It says in Psalm 119 verse 9, if you back up a few verses, it says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. And here in verse 11 it says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. 
Imagine if we went around this week making decisions based upon it is written, it is written, it is written. How would your life look different this week if you lived out what you were hiding in your heart? And of course, it all has to start with hiding it in our heart, doesn't it? Imagine how our lives would be different. And, of course, as we know, this, this weapon here, along with prayer, are the only offensive weapons mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6. Praying and the Word of God are our weapons. The rest of those weapons that Ephesians 6 lists in the armor of God are all defensive. So, Jesus affirms the Old Testament. And the reason that I wanted to point that out is because he also claimed to be God. And if, and if God affirms the Old Testament, then you have both the Old and the New put together And we can say that this book is true, and this book reveals to us a person, and it brings us to need to make this decision on who Jesus Christ is. Who is he? John 14, verse 6 says, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. One thing I've not covered in this series is the exclusivity of Christianity. Maybe I'll do that next week along with the information and the facts about the resurrection. But the reality is, is if there was any other way for mankind to be saved, I mean, look at the cross. Look at how terrible that moment was for God to endure. This is why it is the only way, because the wages of sin is death. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, death was the payment Death was the consequence. And God, being both just, understanding that the consequence of sin is death, but also desiring to see man rescued, he became both, he was both just and the justifier of them that trust in Jesus. And so it was through Jesus becoming a man that he was able to live a perfect, sinless life to become our substitute, our stand in. He is the only hope for humanity, and it's what we decide about him that matters the most. Jesus said, For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So why did Jesus come? What was the purpose of his life? Well, certainly to reveal to us that he is God, but God was on a mission to ransom, to rescue, to redeem, to restore. I want to show you an illustration. Here on this uh, uh, screen, we tend to have, and most religions even have this, and sadly this creeps back into Christianity from time to time, we tend to have our relative moral standard. And what I mean by that is over here on the right-hand side is a small little picture of Osama bin Laden, in case you can't tell who that is. And how many of you have agreed that Osama bin Laden is probably not the most moral person that ever lived? In fact, he would be right down there at the bottom. That's why his picture is very small. Agree? Agree. Osama bin Laden, uh, yeah. Yeah. And so we view Osama bin Laden way over here. And probably most of us would view this fellow over here on the left, Billy Graham, as a pretty morally upstanding individual. Now we know that Billy Graham ultimately trusted in Jesus, and that was his hope of, of life. But... But uh, people who don't know that, people who aren't saved, would just say, oh, well, Billy Graham was a really nice guy, a really good guy, uh, cared for people for 50-plus years, preached the, preached the Bible, and so he was a really moral guy. And so here's what happens in most people's thinking. 
They say that criminals are pretty close to Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden being the worst. So criminals, you know, those who rob banks, those who uh, kill people, those who, um, you know, whatever crime you can think of, criminals, okay, capital crimes. Then we have another category called the immoral. You know, those distant relatives who are on their fourth or fifth marriage, you know, sleeping around, um, the neighbor down the road who, who uh, has a drinking problem. And in our minds, here's what happens. We think we're here. That's where we place our photo. We're not Osama bin Laden. We're not a criminal. We're not even those immoral people. We're pretty close to Billy. Good old Billy. And what we do is we draw a line right there in the middle. We draw a line and say, everybody on the right side, they go to hell. You know, the immoral, the criminals, Osama bin Laden. And everybody on the left side, well, they get in. You might not be able to read that. It says, the good heaven, the bad hell. And that's how most religions think. And sadly, most, not most, but some Christian religions, if they're not careful, even present this as the reality. Here's the problem with this illustration. The line is not down the middle, left and right. The line is at the top. Do you see that? The standard is not down the middle, and these over here go to hell, these over here go to heaven. The line is actually at the top, and what do you notice? This is God's perfect moral standard. Jesus said it in Matthew 5. He says, be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. To the Jew who was honest, they should have heard that and said, whoa, I'm in trouble. Because God's perfect standard is perfection. He even said in Matthew 5, 19 and 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall all likewise perish. He basically was saying, unless you're more righteous than the most good people you know, he says, you're going to perish. They should have said, we're in trouble. You see, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Whether it's Osama bin Laden, the people in jail, the immoral down the street, right, your family reunion, you or Billy Graham, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so why did Jesus come? Why did he come? He came to bridge the gap. He came to make a way, the only way, so that Billy, you, the immoral, the criminals, and even Osama bin Laden, if he truly turned to Jesus, could be saved, could be forgiven of all of their sin. And so this is why Jesus matters. This is why we seek to have an answer to show the world because the world thinks that it's all about these people over here going there and these people over here going there and it's all based on your behavior. No, it's all based on the perfect behavior and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ for it's through his shed blood that we are forgiven of all trespasses. Every single one. His blood washes us white as snow. 
And so as you think about Jesus, this confronts you with this worldview. You see, all of us in this room have to answer these five questions. Write them down quick. I saved these for last. Go ahead and fill out the blanks there. Get this information down. Here's the five worldview questions that all of us are confronted with. No matter whether you're religious or not, whether you're a Christian or another religion, all of us confront these questions and have to have answers. Number one, origin. Where did we come from? Where did we come from? How did we get here? Are, are we just some blind cosmic accident? Or are we here for a reason? Where did we come from? You see, when you study the Bible, you find out that we came into this universe as a created, free will, sentient being, created in the image of God. We are moral beings with a mind to know God, emotions to love God, and a will to choose and obey God. We have a soul, a soul, and it's precious. That's why every life is precious, because mankind was breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So where do we come from? We came from God, our creator. Every day we make choices either to believe or not believe the truth of who God is, of what God has done, of who we now are, and what we should do because of who he has made us to be. Origin, where did we come from? Number two, identity. Who are you? Who am I? Oh, do you see how this question right here is absolutely ravaging our world today? People don't even know who they are in basic biology. Do you see how the moral relativism of our culture today is waging war against God's creation? People are mutilating themselves irreversibly because they don't know who they are. What does the Bible say about who we are? That we're created beings, created male and female, and we were born for a relationship with God, our creator, our savior, our sustainer. He alone can be our satisfier. And so identity, who are you? In the New Testament, all the New Testament epistles, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine on social media this morning about a theological thing we were discussing. And I said, it's amazing as you look at all, almost all of Paul's epistles, he always starts with identity. Here's who you are. You're saints. And then he says, go live like it. I love the fact that Paul didn't get the cart before the horse because he understood that the power to live the Christian life was understanding who you were in Christ so that then your life can be lived from the vine. You see, you bear fruit as you rest in the vine. Identity, who you are. Number three, meaning, why am I here? What is my purpose on this, on this earth? Is life just a big joke? Is life just about getting a whole bunch of stuff? Is life like one of those long Monopoly games? Anybody? Long Monopoly games where you get all the properties, you get all the money, and then it goes back in the box at the end of the day. Is that what life is like? Is it just a Monopoly game? No, the Bible says we're ultimately here for two reasons. Write them down. You want to know the purpose of your existence on this earth? Two, to know God and to make him known. That's it. That's our purpose, to know God 
and to make him known. And I'm not just talking about knowing God intellectually. Oh, a lot of people think they know God intellectually, but I'm talking about what Scott was saying earlier. You, you, you can know there's a chair here and that it'll hold you up, but that's not knowing like the Bible talks about. It's talking about putting all of your rest, all of your confidence, all of your faith in that chair to hold you up. It's experiential knowledge where you have a relationship with God. You place your trust in God. You see, belief that is different than belief in. You can believe, listen, you can go through this whole, this is why this is so important today. You can go through this whole series and say, Pastor Brian, I believe that God exists. Great, the devils also believe and tremble. It's not just about belief that. It's about belief in. In. Believing in him as your personal savior. Trusting him with all of your heart that he is the only way to be made right with God. And it is a gift received by faith because of God's limitless grace. You see, I can believe that Rebecca Argo would have been a good wife for me. I can believe that Rebecca, wave at us, honey. I can believe that, she's really nervous now. I'm using her in an illustration. She's holding her breath. I can believe that Rebecca Argo would make a good wife for me. I could see all of her attributes of her, and I could say, wow, they are desirable. They're, they're amazing. But she is never going to become my wife until I place my trust in her and ask her to marry me, which I did almost 17 years ago. <laughs> Had to count there for a second. You see the difference? I can believe that Rebecca Argo would make a good wife for me, but I'm not believing in that relationship until I take that step of faith and ask her to be my wife. And this is the danger of religion because we can grow up in the church, we can be around the church our entire life, and we can believe that a lot of things are true. But are we trusting in it's so meaning. Why am I here? You're here for a relationship with God. Morality. How should you then live? How should you then live? What does the Bible tell us? The Bible says that we should live being controlled by the Spirit according to the Scriptures. This is the best way to live. It's the healthiest way to live. And it is also the way that you can attract more people to know God, and then they can make Him known as well. So morality has a lot to bear on the Christian life, but it's through the Spirit as He empowers us to live this way, trusting and resting in Him. Again, we bear fruit by resting and abiding in the vine. Morality. And then finally, destiny. Where are we going? What is our ultimate end? The Bible says that God desires for your destiny to be, this is good news, he desires for you to be his adopted child forever, to live with him and your loved ones for all of eternity. This, my friends, is a wonderful message for a world that is hopelessly broken. And the best thing about this message that we share is that it is absolutely true. And as we look next week at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we'll see that. Irrefutable to me, Proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Of course, there's a step of faith at some point. But I like what Bob Inyart said when he was here several weeks ago about faith. Faith is not an uninformed faith. Faith is not a blind leap into darkness, but rather it's a confident step into light. 
And my challenge for us today is that we would wrestle with these worldview questions. Listen, are you an atheist here today? Are you a skeptic? You have to be able to wrestle with these questions and answer them. How did we get here? Why does there seem to be so much intentionality and design and purpose behind the creation of the universe when you look at all the evidence? Why, who are you? Are you just an evolved animal? Then no wonder animals are act, people are acting like animals today. They've been told for two or three decades now that they're just evolved animals. Why are you here? What's your purpose? How should you live? Where are you going? What did Peter say? He said, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What will you say about Jesus Christ? Who is he to you? And how do you frame the world that you live in? Let's pray.